0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm talking with author, poet, and speechwriter, Camone Felix. Her new book is called Discalculia: a love story of epic miscalculation. It is a personal and raw account of a traumatic relationship breakup which spurred a period of deep healing and reflection in Camone's life. Camone uses her childhood struggles with math as a key to understanding herself, her romantic life, and the world a little bit better. Camone's first poetry collection, Build Yourself a Boat, was released in 2019 and made the National Book Award long list. Don't forget to tune into The Stacks next week on February 22nd for our book club discussion of The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. Mina Kimes will be our returning guest for that conversation. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the show can be found in the link in the show notes. Also, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Music or Spotify. If you love the show and want more of it, please go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. I could not make this show without the support of the stacks pack. And for just $5 a month, you get bonus episodes, our virtual book club, access to our super duper lively discord and more. Plus you get to know that your contribution makes it possible for this podcast to get made every single week. So head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join a special shout out to our newest members of the stacks pack. Katie Hoeschild, Katrina Doty, Jess Phillips, Mara Costo, Catherine DeMaza, Carolyn Tom, Jessica Rongione, and Ginger Rochelle. Thank you all so much, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Camon Felix. All right, everybody. I'm very excited. Uh, yesterday was Valentine's Day. Today we're talking about the breakup. I am joined by Camon Felix, whose brand new book that just came out yesterday or yeah, yesterday is called Discalculia: a love story of epic miscalculations. Kamone, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. I'm very, very excited. I was telling you, I've already read the book twice because I listened once on audio and then I read it off the page because I felt like I needed to like have more time with it. But will you let folks know in about 30 seconds or so what this book is about?
1: This book is about heartbreak and all of the different ways that heartbreak can manifest in someone's life uh, and the way that heartbreak can lead someone to important breakthroughs.
0: And one of the or like one of the major heartbreaks in this story is a relationship of yours that ended. When did that happen? like how long ago in your life was that? That was about
1: six years ago and when I fir- I first started writing the book very soon after it happened um I started writing it probably in the two months that came after. but it was oh, wow. an entirely different book when I started writing it then it was uh it was actually, in verse, There were stanzas. Um, and I was being a lot more coy, I would say. Mm. Um, the, the texture of the book felt different. It was like supposed to be an art project, right? Not really something in which I said something necessary or anything that I needed to say. And
0: so since then, I've written
1: it about 10 times.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting, because I had a question written down for you, which was like, when did you start writing this? And how much has the book changed since you started? Because Mm -hmm. it feels like one of those books where it's like you're pulling from your childhood Mm -hmm. all the way through to this breakup and like sort of a little bit after. And it was one of those things where I was thinking like a lot of the things a lot of the themes and topics that come up you could revisit in a million ways like i mean it's like relationship with your mother mental yeah. health like yeah. and i'm like thinking at at 22 this book is really different than what it might look like at 42 or mm-hmm. 62 and mm-hmm. but but no matter when you wrote it it would be a necessary story because the themes are like so and not universal, but you know, they are kind of, Mm -hmm. not everybody has mother, daughter, but everybody has family relationships. Everybody has, you know, is it hard to write something so personal and like to craft it into something that feels like it can be accessible for people who aren't in your brain? That's a great question. Yeah, it's hard. It's not hard because it's painful.
1: It's hard because it's a challenge and it's a, It's so usually when I write, especially when I write poetry, I don't really write for an audience or even with an audience in mind. When Mm -hmm. I write poetry, poetry is is very much for myself first. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then in the editing and revision process, that's when it becomes for other people, possibly. I see. But I think in Dyscalculia, I knew, especially once I got to like the third draft. That I was indeed writing it for people to read <laughs> mm. right and I think something that I've always been against um, and very frustrated with is like trauma porn right and people writing trauma porn or writing about trauma in ways that are transactional and I think one of the ways that you avoid that when you're writing about trauma is to make it worth the reader's while right mm-hmm. and so with that in mind as I was writing this story I'm like okay I know that the story that I'm trying to tell requires that I talk about trauma and that I talk about it candidly, but I'm not trying to hurt or harm or maim whoever is going to read this. So if that's the case, then I have to read with them in mind. And because that's not a muscle that I have really worked, <laughs> it was hard to do in, in this, to, to, to be authentic to the story and still think to myself, like, how do I take care of the person on the other side of this? When they encounter this really intense, you know that's why when you were like, I read it twice. I was like, Oh my god! <laughs> I did not intend for you to do that, uh, but obviously, <laughs> like, you are an autonomous person and you read how you read. You're uh, you're a reader, right? So you're going to encounter it how you how you choose to. But there's so much of that dance of like, how how much do I guide the reader? How much um, do I build up? around them, how much safety do I build around them versus how much do I allow them to just be an autonomous reader coming to the text? So that was hard.
0: Yeah. Okay. I have some follow-up questions about that because I'm really curious. First of all, I will say this. You did a good job because I did not feel like this was a trauma story even though as you're saying that, I'm like, yes, of course, there's like conversations about self harm. There's like, you know, like there's, there's definitely like you've had some traumatic experiences that you captured in the book, but it didn't feel that way to me at all. Like I never would have used those words to describe it. But I'm really curious about how you're putting yourself in the shoes of your audience. But even before that, who did you envision that your audience was? Like whose shoes were you, were you even putting yourself into as you were writing?
1: When I first started writing it, this was extremely about myself. <laughs> it was <laughs> so I, I actually have a, a funny anecdote that goes with that. I texted my very, very close friend, Safiya, hello. Um, as I'm going through this breakup, she knows all about it. We've been close since we were like 16 years old. So I'm asking her where do I find a book getting real specific? I'm like, where do I find a book that is nonfiction, but like poetic that is about a breakup that's written by a black woman. And she was like, I don't know. like, (laughs) You know, she's like, there's like Khadijah queen. There's like the memoirs of the people you already love. But like, I don't really know what else to tell you, but remember what Toni Morrison said, if there's something in the world that you haven't seen that you want to see, then you should make it. So she said that to me. And I can the conversation just kind of like ended and I was like, you know what? I actually, a couple of days later, I was like, I actually do have to write this book because I really, really need to read it. And it's not, it's not here. I can't find it. So I started writing it as a way to kind of like soothe myself thinking that if I at least started writing it, I would buy time for someone else to write a better version of it and then it would come out. And then time kept sort of, happening. (laughs) It kept, you know, I kept writing it. It kept not being published. And and so one thing that I'm used to as a poet is like, you take very small parts of a collection of anything and you're publishing it pretty consistently over time. And usually when something isn't getting published after a certain point in your career, I would say, because it's really arbitrary, but like at a certain point If the poems are not being published, that's a sign to you that, like, maybe they're not working. Mm. In this situation, I didn't feel like it wasn't working. I knew that it was working. And the feedback that I was getting was, like, this is a thing that can't be cut up into pieces. Like, we don't know how to publish this. And then I was, like, okay, so this is a a book then. I'm just going to keep writing it like this. And then... Once I realized that, that's when the audience kind of came into play where I was like, OK, so this is not just putting out, you know, a series of poems. This is not going to be a, a a choreo poem. It's not this is going to be a book and it's going to be nonfiction and I have to write it that way. And then I was like, oh, crap, I know who's going to be reading nonfiction. It's all the people who are reading the people that I already love, the people that I'm reading, who are reading Kiese and who are reading Tisha, right. and who, and I realized that, and I don't know, just made a couple of calculations about how I wanted to approach it from there.
0: And you dedicate the book to anyone who's ever cried on the subway, which I love. Yeah. I have cried on the subway. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for writing a book for me. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> So there's a part of the book where you talk about white girls getting to write about benign heartbreak and sort of that comes up later in the book when when you're like, I'm writing a book about benign heartbreak Mm -hmm. and to some like dude and he's like, cool. Yeah, that's it. He's like, that's it. Yeah. I want to know for for from your perspective, what what was the draw to write about benign heartbreak? Was it simply like, I want equality and I want to be able to write about what like white people can write about, Mm -hmm. or was there some like revolutionary feeling for you to like, be able to put something like this out into the world?
1: It definitely wasn't as like binary as I want to like rebel and I want to like show white people a thing. There was some of that in there. Right. I think that's ego.
0: Yeah, I, I would say as an that, egotistical Leo, I it's yeah, definitely ego it's and I all, love that as, vibe. It's all ego, hundred yeah, percent.
1: Yeah, so all there's <laughs> there's there's enough of that in there for sure. But I would say, like, what's really in there is when I was younger, I went to the library and I went to the bookstore, not just to find myself, but to escape and to mm-hmm. try to define safety so that I knew what to look for. And I read a lot of romance novels, a lot of uh, YA novels that were about romance and breakups and things like that. I am well-versed in the genre. And what I never saw was anyone writing about heartbreak, even though it seems like such a Mm -hmm. pivotal point of romance, right? Or it's such a, a pivotal topic in the conversation of romance. And... I realized that the reason why people don't want to talk about heartbreak in romance, or at least don't want to talk about it with any real depth or analysis is because heartbreak is about trauma and people don't want to associate romance with trauma. They just don't want to have to do that. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that like trauma is only different for the person it's happening to, but all trauma is trauma. Right. So like, sure. Whether it's sexual assault or heartbreak. Right. If both things happen in my life, one person who isn't in my life or isn't in my body can't tell me that they didn't feel the same. I see. And I wanted to be able to to bring that to really maximize the scale. Like, let's talk about how big heartbreak can be and all of the different ways that it can touch you. And I felt like the reason why people hadn't done that before, particularly white women writers who I feel don't, and I mean this with a generality that I know is not fair, but aren't always required to be rigorous in Mm -hmm. their approach to literature. I knew that it was not necessarily revolutionary, but a useful fuck you to the industry Mm -hmm. and, and, and to all of it to be able to say like, no, this kind of heartbreak and this kind of narrative, this kind of story has a place in this genre and in this canon. And I know that it has a place because I put it there. I'm not waiting for anyone to congratulate me. I'm not waiting for anyone to give me a pat on the back because I've read enough of this stuff and because I'm invested in this stuff, I knew what I was writing when I wrote it. And I think that that's not always respected in Black women writers. And so often we get pushed into the margins of the literary world, right? Whether it's, you know, poetry or a certain kind of nonfiction. But if I'm lucky, Dyscalculia will be front and center in bookstores across the country. And this is not just a story about falling in love and getting your heart broken, but something a lot more rigorous and maybe in some ways dense. And that feels a little revolutionary to me. But a young yeah. black girl is going to be able to walk in and read this a different kind of book and be able to have a different kind of take on her own life and on her own heartbreak see herself differently and thus like do different stuff in the world that I felt really indignant about
0: yeah i i love that i i it's interesting the way that you're using the word heartbreak and having read the book i sort of feel like heartbreak and trauma are synonyms sort of in your in your world and in this story and I never really thought about them that that way but you saying sort of like trauma is the same for everyone on the outside but for people experiencing like it is different but you know no um
1: there's a there's a poem by cam awkward rich um I can't say it word for word right now but it says it's something like you know I step outside and it breaks my heart you know I these little things—I I see a cat die, and it breaks my heart. These little tiny things that you mm-hmm. have to encounter every day that truly do hurt you, but you don't have mm-hmm. language for it, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's so interesting. So you're a poet, your National Book Award fine or long listed poet. You're Thank a poet you. by trade. You're also you also have other jobs, which we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. But this book sort of sits in between poetry and memoir um part of the reason that i read it a second time is because i listened to it the first time and then when i was just flipping through it to like find things to write questions about i was like oh this is written not how like it you know like sometimes there's one sentence on a page sometimes mm-hmm. it's like two small paragraphs sometimes it's a bunch of paragraphs and i was like oh i need to spend time with this book on the page because i can't always capture that Um, with audio, obviously, you know, like Mm -hmm. you can't do it the same way. So I'm wondering why this form of going like it's, you knew it wasn't a book of poems, but like, how did you decide that it wasn't fully a book of like, Re- regular, regular prose. I don't yeah, know what to call no, totally. traditional memoir versus like this sort of hybrid situation.
1: Yeah, I wasn't sure what what happened. Is I just wrote the book and I finished it. When I was done, I was done. I wrote it ten times. I wrote it that tenth time, <laughs> and I was like, I'm done, and that's that. On that, and and that was sort of <laughs> the job of me and my editor and my agent to sort of figure out like where is this going to sit on the shelves and like how is it going to sit in the world? And to this day, we still don't have a clear answer. Like we still are not sure what it is, but I also really enjoy that. Like my work as a, as a poet and my work in general, honestly is about ambiguity, living in these mm-hmm. really, you know, gray areas and trying to make something out of it. Um, and so dyscalculia feels like it's like following in my footsteps, right? Cause it's mm-hmm. just like, it's doing exactly what i do and it wasn't intentional <laughs> i just yeah i i wrote it knowing that it would border genre and uh, honestly i assumed that by the time it was over it would have situated itself in one way or another but it just didn't want to
0: yeah i i mean i struggled too to be like i don't know what this what to call this book yeah i i think i just was like it's unique which yeah. it is. You know, I'm like, I don't know. It's unique. It's different. It's yeah. not like other books. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the title. So the book mm-hmm. is called Dyscalculia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you should tell people what dyscalculia is. And then I want to ask you to diagnose me with dyscalculia when you're done.
1: <laughs> okay. That's okay. the next step. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people know about dyslexia. They are not the same and they're not even necessarily comparable, but it's um, an easy setup for you to kind of imagine how it affects someone and it's the inability for a person to do basic mathematical sequences, right? So the inability to do arithmetic, the inability to do like base. And when I say arithmetic, I mean, basic arithmetic skills, like subtraction, division, addition, things like that. And then of course the inability to do more advanced kinds of maths, um, especially maths that you might do in, in higher education. So, if I were to diagnose you or anyone
0: with dyscalculia. First of all, I want to say that I am not a psychiatrist. <laughs> not
1: a I'm not a professional. <laughs> you don't
0: actually have to diagnose me. I just <laughs> I'm bad at math and I'd never yeah. heard this phrase and I was like, "Oh, yeah. maybe yeah. this maybe I have well, dyscalculia." Cuz I'm like very bad at math. Yeah,
1: I mean, well, I'll put it this way. Do you like are you unable to do table math? At
0: this point, yeah. Well, I, then I don't know. There I, might be something for you to work through. I feel like I might have a a, sl- a, a not severe, a what yeah. you, a mild dyscalculia. Yeah. I think part of it is that I just, I can't, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't uh-huh. compute. Like I can yeah. do like one plus one, right? Sure. But like, I can't really do, I can't really do multiplication unless I have my little, like I have to do like my fingers for the nines, yeah. you know, like, yeah. I, I it's not happening for me. Yeah. Um, But I had never heard this phrase. And then I was like, wow, maybe, maybe all along there was just something going on with me and I'm just not an idiot because like you, I like because in the book, you know, you have this traumatic event that happens and then, Mm -hmm. you know, they take you to a place to. Figure out what the fuck's going on, and and the doctors are like, it could be this, it could be that, and then this one mm-hmm. doctor's like, it also could be do- dyscalculia, but it's probably not just that. Like, there's other yeah. things. Exactly. Like, she, you're like sucking at math really hardcore. It's not working mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. But I guess my question is, do you actually have dyscalculia, or did you just have like extreme trauma and other like mental health things going on?
1: I mean, that's the thing. You don't really know. You don't. Know. That, okay. Right. <laughs> like that's kind of so the the way that what happens with things like dyscalculia, right? Is that like, you talk to your doctor. I have had many doctors. I've been diagnosed with many things. We won't go into it today, but- It's in the book.
0: Some of it's in the book. Some of it's in the book. Yes,
1: exactly. (laughs) But the doctors then make like obvious connections. You know, like you'll ask, I'll ask specifically about- this inability to do math and how it manifests. And they're like, well, you have ADHD. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's that. And then there's also this thing that goes with ADHD. And then there's this thing that goes with bipolar and they're all dyscalculia. Right. Um, so I, the way that's how I've been sort of like, uh, that's my diagnosis. Uh, mm. Am I being like treated for dyscalculia? No, because that's not really how it works. You don't really, it's more of like, like you treat children for dyscalculia. Adults, you kind of just like, sorry, guys. Get a like,
0: calculator. Yeah,
1: get a calculator. Google. A uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, but what I've learned about myself through that diagnosis and through all the subsequent diagnoses is that trauma is was really corrosive for me. And it's not true for a lot of people right? Because some things are genetic. Bipolar is genetic usually for most people. And so what happens is that triggers, um, you know, trauma can either trigger it or you can live a relatively traumaless life and it could be pretty latent and you never really know until something bad happens, you know, sometime in your life a little bit later down the line. And what I've learned is just that, first of all, we all, we're not all mentally ill. I will not say that, but we are all on some spectrum of Mm -hmm. something, right? Um, We all just suffered through and are still suffering through a mass disabling event. That's what COVID Mm -hmm. is and was. And everyone could use a little bit of grace and could use a story of learning how to give themselves grace, especially around those disabilities. Um, and I think that's part of what i what dyscalculia is doing in unintentionally is helping people get more comfortable with disability and get more comfortable mm-hmm. with talking about it. Um, it's not salacious, right? I'm not like showing you like a weird, sexy thing by talking about mental health disorder. I'm having a very candid mm-hmm. conversation that if we are all prepared to have, when, if we can all be prepared to have it we'll probably feel a lot more free and maybe Mm -hmm. we can like lose some of the labels and whatever. My mom is like very sensitive to all the ways that I've been diagnosed because she's been watching it over the years um, and doesn't trust any diagnosis. And honestly, constantly it's just like, I just want you to see yourself as a ball of energy. (laughs) And here, here are the ways that your ball of energy needs to be processed. And I don't know if I'm always on her wavelength, but I think she's on to something around just wanting to like, let people understand themselves through, like, intuitive learning. And and anyway, I think that this conversation and and talking about disability in this way can help people do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think your mom, she's such an interesting character in the book. and, And I think, like, by the end especially I think throughout you can feel her like fierce, protective love of you Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. also her like trying to protect herself, Mm -hmm. not necessarily from you, but from what's going on with you and the doctors and the things that are like around you. Yeah, And she has this part towards the end way, way, way at the end where she says, you know, come on, it's not the world's job to understand you. It's your job to understand the world. And it's not until you kind of get comfortable with that, that you're going to feel any sort of like groundedness or goodness or wholeness. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, was that actually helpful for you that that kind of like distinction? And does it did it free you up? Do you feel like it changed how you understand yourself and the world?
1: Yeah, it was immediately transformative for me. I think because I was always like a, a kid with a lot of like, I don't know. I was, I had a lot of analysis. I was constantly analyzing things and people and systems and she gave me an analytical lens that mm-hmm. I didn't have before. Um, and it was the first time anyone had truly said anything helpful to me about how mm-hmm. to navigate what I was going through, which was like, if you can, basically what she was saying to me was like, if you can understand how and why the world works then you can understand how you live in it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's all I needed to know. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, like, you know, even though I was really troubled and spent a lot of time not wanting to be alive, when I wanted to be alive, what I knew was that I had some stuff to figure out about how to make this world work for me, how to be Mm -hmm. mentally ill in the way I was mentally ill in the world because I already knew that it wasn't going to be accepted, that people were not going to make it easy for me, but I had no roadmap. And her saying that gave me an an open kind of blank roadmap, right? Like a way to mm-hmm. to make it up myself. But at the same time, I felt guided. And I think that it has a her saying that to me has a lot to do with why I became a poet. Because I think a big part of being a poet is simply considering. Like, being a poet is sitting in one room with yourself, which is your mind, and really asking yourself why a thing is the way it is, whether that's heartbreak or, you know, something political. And I think when she said to me that I needed to understand the world, I saw it as a project um, and as a thing I could be in control of. And then my poems just became that, my way of trying to 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 see the world and understand it and chart it down and say to myself, this is how it works.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com. That's n o o m.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. I, I want to come back to the title one more time. Not not about my personal diagnosis, but <laughs> I'm curious how dyscalculia As an idea, became sort of the title of your book, or like how you see it as this like leading piece. Because for me as a reader, I thought I was going to like read all about you like going to math camp or something. (laughs) I didn't. I mean, obviously not that, but like it doesn't it doesn't feel obvious to me as Mm -hmm. to why that was the choice. So I'm Mm -hmm. I just love to hear you speak about the the mathiness of it in your mind
1: so much of why I wanted to write about dyscalculia is because through understanding my own relationship to math, I really came back to math in a philosophical way and mm-hmm. I was experiencing it through philosophy, um, and through theory. And that made a lot of sense to me. It made a lot of sense to me. And honestly really helped me, um, build up the patience and the resilience to be able to try to learn math again, um, and to try to start over from from where I abandoned it in, in second grade. And the title, I'll say this, the title was never going to be anything else. When I sent the first uh, 10 pages to my friend after I'd written it, uh, or first started writing it, in the email, the subject line says dyscalculia. And I just said, Mm. read this. I I don't Mm. necessarily, I don't completely know why Mm -hmm. that was the choice, but I think, you know, I'll say this too. So much of the philosophy and the theory that is really the most exciting part for me, so much of that came a lot later. And I think I see dyscalculia, the word and the title as kind of a guide, as like taking me towards this philosophical approach that I didn't know I needed for myself. And so I, it's a risk that I knew I was going to take. Uh, it's a heady mathematical term. It's a, an active diagnosis, right? It's something that people are struggling with every day. And I knew that inevitably some people would feel like I was exploiting it to an extent hmm. because I saw, I've saw i seen a couple of people say things like, I came to this book because I thought she was actually going to talk about dyscalculia because I have dyscalculia. Oh, I see. I'm open to that criticism because I think it's fair. But I also think that the choice that I made could not have coexisted with the choice that they want me to make. Right. And that was to build a philosophical mathematical framework where people could feel math, touch math, experience math, have an emotional relationship to math without having to do any calculation themselves. I didn't Mm -hmm. want the reader to have to do any labor. I just wanted them to be able to show up and experience math in the way I was giving it to them. So yeah, that's the story behind the title. That's interesting.
0: Since we're talking about math, theoretical or like philosophical math, not not math theory, but... Something that came up for me in the book, and there, I have no question. I've been thinking about this a lot. There's no question at the end of this, so you're going to have to just hear what I say and then speak, okay? <laughs> this learning. I can do that. <laughs> okay. There's something about math and religion to me that I struggle with both things as ideas and in practice, mm-hmm. but also I know there are a lot of people to whom to which whom which, both <laughs> things are super important and fundamental to how they think about and understand the world, right? Like mm-hmm. that there are people who are like, math is the same in every language and we can all connect through math, right? Mm-hmm. And there's the same kind of thing about religion where it's like religion, faith will be there with you in your darkest times. It'll always be there. It's like this consistent thing. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking about how like there isn't like a religious undertone, though the cover has religious vibes to me. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, there's no question there, but there was something religious in your work and I can't figure out what it is. And maybe it wasn't the math part, but like, does that spark anything in you? What yeah, I'm saying? for sure. Yeah, for okay, sure. Good. I think, I think what
1: is interesting about that is that I don't necessarily see math as a religion. I understand the Pythagoreans and how they got to the religion that they built. And, and maybe that's part of where it's coming from is, is that it's so early in the book that I mentioned the religion and, and kind of how it worked. But I do think that math, why I like math is because of patterns. I really like patterns and I could find mm-hmm. them in anything. Um, and patterns are, are math, right? So. Right. When I'm going through the world and I'm seeing different patterns, whether that's in, you know, our sociopolitical environment or our cl- our climate change, right? I'm seeing the numbers of how these things became what they became. I'm seeing, you know, hundreds of years of neglect, hundreds of thousands of dollars going to the wrong place, right? millions of people being displaced. I see those patterns as numbers. And so I think that that is also what brings people to religion is that they feel like they can see God in everything. God is the pattern. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I do think that I set it up. I set up the parallel that way in dyscalculia where I'm essentially saying that math is everything. And I think that kind of like totalizing perspective mm-hmm. feels very religious. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that makes total sense to me. And the cover though, I will say the cover is in some ways a little in anti religious because it's a tarot card.
0: Oh. Okay, but that's religiousy to me, right? Isn't yeah, that like I, I people see. like Yeah.
1: Like it has yeah. just like
0: religious iconography. It's not like Jesus or anything. Yeah. But thank like God. it has <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> Could you imagine? People imagine, would be so mad if you had, mean, had a so book so that was, like Discount here's, Jesus. here's like, Jesus. But it It has like yeah okay tarot see I'm really not into I don't know any of this stuff but just like generally religiosity is not like religiosity doesn't feel
1: yeah no that makes a lot of sense I'm very sensitive about religion as well I don't really like well I don't have to say really I don't have to qualify that I don't like organized religion Um, I think it is like the seed of all evil Uh, evil yeah but but I, I think like if math were a religion, someone would find a reason to kill someone over it. So I never, I don't want math to be, I don't want math to feel like a religion, but I do want it. I do want the sense of piousness to be there. The sense that like math is something that you can revere and that you can honor.
0: And, and isn't just like
1: the thing you were forced to do in middle school that you now
0: ignore. Well, that's what it is for me. Yeah. It's the thing I was forced to do in school that I copied, I cheated on a lot of tests to get into uh, college. So thanks for I me. understand. <laughs> but, I, I, but I got there and I went to college and I have a degree and I <laughs> didn't take a single math class after my junior year of high school. And look that's at me now, talking about math on a podcast. Here I am. How did you this are. happen? <laughs> <laughs> look at us. Look at us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like wow. the, the hot wings moment. Yeah. Okay. I want to transition a little bit to your process and your writing. Um, how, how did you make time to write this book? I know that you're a busy person. You are a, you also have this like political activism world that you function in. You don't just sit at home and write poems all day. So how did you make time to be that come and write about this come I sort of didn't. I don't think,
1: I, I don't think that I'm good at making time at all. I think, Okay. it it kind of just happened in the in the margins of time so when I had a couple hours off from the other thing then you do the one thing if you're on the train then you've got an hour ride it's time to edit some poems right just kind of fitting it all in where I can but still trying to do that rigorously I guess and like not treating it like just like, oh, I have to do this thing, so I'm just going to, like, do it and get it out of the way. But, like, taking real time and taking the tasks really seriously. And now I actually, I do write poems all day now for a living because I I left my day job about three months ago. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> and I did that in part because of what we're talking about because I look back at Discalculia and I'm extremely proud of it. I I think it was as good as it was going to be. But at the same time, there was probably a world where I could have spent spent more time on some of the details. And, and that's important to me as a person who struggles with attention to detail. I wanna constantly be building that skill where I can. Um, and I certainly think that being in too many places at once takes away from my ability to pay attention to detail. So I'm excited now to like work on whatever is next, Um, finish up the book that I've been working on for the last two years and take a step back. What is that book
0: about? That book
1: is is called Let the Poets Govern and it's not what, it's also a book that is not what it sounds like. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It is um, basically talking about the end of the world, how we came to the end of the world, speaking as if we are already there, how we came to the end of the world and kind of the legislative history and legislative landscape that built that. Um, And the kind of language is it poetry,
0: or is it? It It's not poetry. It's it's another in between. Sort of in In between. between.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: we're both shaking our shoulders. Yeah, i like ooh (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It's something, something in between. But I have a feeling that this one is going to feel a lot more nonfiction and feel a lot. Got it. So, which is which is good. I think it's important for me because, again, ego that no one thinks that I can't.
0: So this is a thing. So a thing that I know about you is that you're very close with Jason Reynolds. I am this chip chip on your shoulder thing. <laughs> it's a very Jason Reynolds thing. He talks it about it every time he comes on the podcast. He has mentioned it every time I talked to him. He mentions it. And it's such a funny, it's such a funny yeah. thing for someone like him or you who's so talented and has already accomplished so much in such a short <laughs> amount of time to be like, I just need to let people know. I can also do this <laughs> thing. It's like, nobody's doubting you guys. You're already great. We love you. We love it here. Keep going. That's so funny. But I also understand that like, I'm a very petty person, and so like uh-huh. I need a, I need an enemy to be creative. You know, oh, yeah. like, it's not yeah, like it's not actually that I meet an enemy but like I'm just so much better if there's someone outside of me that I can be like I hope one day they hear this episode and they're mortified forever you know (laughs) like I just like have that so I get it yeah but it's just funny to hear people that I'm like wow these incredibly talented people are still feeling like I have to prove myself and I'm like no you're doing great
1: that's so funny I think I got some of it from Jason actually I'm gonna I'm gonna take that uh I yeah I (laughs) that's it's gone. it just it you absorb it it just gets on you the chair yeah you know <laughs> we'll be we'll be sitting at dinner and I'm like I'm gonna get them and he's
0: like I'm gonna yeah. get them and then it's concerning <laughs> I love it I love it um when you are writing mm-hmm. how are how, like how do you like to write? Is there music or no? Are there snacks and beverages? Where are you physically? If you have a, I mean, sometimes you said you'll be on the train or whatever. But if you, it's a when you're sitting down to write, like what's that setup like? <sighs> um,
1: it really depends. I mean, I like to write from my office. I have a home office that mm-hmm. me and my fiance have worked very hard to make it like my space and to feel like my space. So. We go really hard for my space. Um, it's got a couch. Like, it's super cute. It's really, I think that apartment deco should come do a look at my office. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, but other than that, I mean, I like to travel a lot. I like to travel and, and write. So I write okay. well on planes, honestly. Okay. Um, I edit well on planes. I, I write with pressure. So if I'm in a workshop and I have something to be delivered, you know, the next week, Mm -hmm. then I can get it out no matter where I am. One time I was randomly just at a library in Mexico city and had no plans of being there, but I knew I had to write this poem. So (laughs) that's what happened. Um, But yeah, it's everywhere for me, which I think speaks a lot to how I write and the kind of writing that I do. So much of it is a conversation uh, in my head and that conversation can happen
0: anywhere what about snacks and beverages? Oh my goodness. Okay. So, yes. Here we go. <laughs> there's
1: this snack called Twin Snakes by Haribo. No, not the Twin Snakes. It's called Sour Sour Spaghetti. It's oh, called I Haribo know that. Sour, sour Spaghetti. And yes. I buy maybe four packs at a time. And I oh go through the yes. entire pack in a month. Like, it's ridiculous so I eat that I love having graham crackers they're really convenient keep you full, keep you fed and full um, I love to have fruit so if I could just have like raw fruit just like hanging around some pineapple, some watermelon that'll do it but honestly like I'm a snack girl I love to snack so if there are pretzels mm-hmm. around chips around mm-hmm. that's what I'm eating when I'm writing anything that
0: is salty or sweet Give it to me. I love this. We can. I'm going to come to your office
1: and yes. snack with you. Yes, I probably please. won't get much
0: work done, but I'll just come and eat your snacks. I'm a snack girl. You did work something short. that's really fun. I, I don't think anyone's ever done on the podcast, which is you actually started with your least healthy snack and then went to fruit. Most yeah. people try to be like, oh, I only eat grapes. And then I'm like, really? And they're like, screw also, that!" I do cocaine and uh-huh, I drink uh-huh. gallons of whiskey. I'm like, uh-huh. fuck you with the grapes. Okay, like, exactly. nice next try. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> no, fuck that. I'm not going to even try to pretend. What I like yeah. are these sour, small spaghettis that probably are causing me to gain weight. And you know what? I'm just going to accept the weight. I'm just going to yeah. take it enjoy the good. sour spaghetti yeah
0: Thank you. they are delicious I know I'm a big gummies fan I love a gummy yeah. a Swedish fish oh, that's my we'll go-to. be friends we will be friends yeah, oh. yeah I love this for us yeah um, me too. okay yeah. here's another important question about how you write or about your writing what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try
1: oh my goodness um
0: idiosyncrasies Oh my gosh, that's, I can't even say that word. <laughs> that's hard. I can't get That's it a right. really hard one. I can't get it right. I, no. I have no idea. I can't help you. Um, okay, so you worked in politics. You wrote like speeches for people, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is that for you? Because I know you as a person who writes very personal things. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I feel like writing words for other people to say is very far from that and very far from what i read in dyscalculia so oh. is, are you like okay i'm going to put on my politico hat and like per, like or it, are you given like patterns like you said that you can kind of like hit on like how do you Change your voice so much, so drastically that it it could be someone else's. Slash, would you ever write a movie screenplay or television show? Because it sounds like that's sort of in that same world of like creating another person that's oh, yeah. not you. To
1: answer your question, I've already written a TV show. I've written a, com- okay. a couple okay. of pilots, and I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do ever. I don't know if I'll ever like actually get to it's see like any of them out. come to screen. Yeah, because um, it's like actually kind of hard to do. <laughs> I live in LA.
0: I'm very familiar. Very, very familiar. Yeah. No, it's
1: hard. And people are not very nice. So I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But yeah, to answer your question about how I jump in between these voices, it's all about patterns. It's exactly what you said. Basically, I watch someone talk, right? I'll watch a speech that they gave that maybe they wrote or that, you know, they did off the top. And you watch their speech patterns. You watch the kind of anecdotes they like you watch you know the pace that they speak at when people fall asleep when they're talking when people perk up <sighs> when they're most activated you watch all of that and then you kind of you kind of i don't know it's just in in your head and then they tell you that they that there's an if something's happening and there has to be a speech it's always a theme and you think about the pattern okay how does this person talk What are they good at? What are they bad at? What is the message they most need to get across for this to be successful? And you work together with a bunch of people to to figure that out with the policy people and, you know. And then you just kind of write it with their voice in your head, right? You spend, you kind of immerse yourself in them. It's the same thing that I do when I write profiles. You immerse yourself in their life and in their voice. And then you kind of
0: come out mimicking them. Right, right. Okay, this is sort of a weird question. I don't know, but um, I'm just thinking, I'm like looking at you, I'm like, Black woman, I know you wrote for Andrew Cuomo, I know you worked for Elizabeth Warren. I'm not going to ask you about him. Thank but you. I'm thinking, and then I'm thinking about like Barack Obama had those like preppy white boys that wrote for him. Yeah. And like, how much do you feel that a politician's speeches are the voice or like are the how much like responsibility do you take for the speeches that politicians give? Do you feel like there is a lot of kimono in them? Or do you really feel like it's a lot of like, okay, I'm channeling Andrew Cuomo. I don't actually feel this way about a lot of things, but I'm just like doing my job, I guess is sort of the question. So
1: I will tell you a funny story. It's very, very quick. Andrew Cuomo, I worked for him for about a year and some change. Andrew Cuomo never gave a speech I wrote. Okay, not one time, because right. so you're almost,
0: completely off the hook. People don't blame <laughs> come on Nothing to do with it.
1: Nothing to do with me. And part of the reason why that happened is because, to your exactly what you were asking, there's almost no way for a speechwriter to not put themselves in. If a speechwriter is just doing their job, then they're doing it all wrong. Your job as a right. speechwriter, among the many jobs, is to help push your candidate or your principal in the direction rhetorically that like makes them have to do something right Mm -hmm. so if i give you know let's say elizabeth warren a speech that's about climate change we're going to put things in the speech that she either can do should do or will do right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. when she sits down with that speech she's going to look at it and be like can i commit to that can i commit Mm -hmm. to doing this thing Right. And then if she can't commit to that, then maybe we we need to work, rework it. Maybe there's a different commitment that can be made. Right. But that is your job as the speech writer is to be the sort of the rhetorical guide, helping Mm -hmm. to channel policy and, and all of the other elements of a politician's profile, candidacy, whatever, to channel that into a message that everybody can be proud of yourself included. So sometimes, you write a speech, and you give it to somebody, and they're like, "These, I'm not. I'm not doing any of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. These are not commitments I'm willing to make." And then somebody else writes the speech, right, because they already know now that you are further left than where they want to be. So I see,
0: yeah. So like I your see- ideology is in the speeches that you write. Mm-hmm. And I so mean, that's why you might hire a speechwriter Who is like super different from the politician Because you might have a perspective Or like um, a set of things that you want to see happen That maybe they hadn't considered or whatever
1: Yeah, for sure Some of my ideo- ideology is in there If my complete ideology was in there None of them would have jobs So Sure, <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> And so, neither would you.
1: And neither would I, right? Um, which, which is actually part of why I quit because it's just not – these questions are, are useful because they help remind me of why I made the choice that I made.
0: Mm.
1: And it was particularly that is the fact that people don't even know how much space a speechwriter is required to take up in a politician's portfolio – in order to like make them do a thing that is useful. And even you fight all year, one speech to get them to do one big thing. And it's not even a 10th of the way towards wh- where you know they need to be or where you know everybody right. needs to be. I'm an right. abolitionist at heart. I am fundamental. I'm an abolition. I've been an abolitionist almost my whole life since the first time I went to a prison at seven years old. There is not a single Politician that I've ever worked for who has been willing to use the language of abolition mainly because they can't defend it on the floor. They can't take it into the into whatever house that they're in. Right. If it's Congress, if it's the governor's house, it has no bearing there because it's not a political ask. Right. Abolition is not something that can be achieved through voting. (laughs) Abolition is something that has to happen through a lot of other elements and voting is probably not going to be one of them. Right. Or it's going to be the smallest part of it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in a lot of it, but not enough of me and not the right parts of me. And that's why I left.
0: Okay. Last question about this, because I could do this for hours, but we got, we got a (laughs) late jump on this. So we got to go soon. But if the right candidate came along someone who was more politically aligned with you, maybe not fully where you are, because I just can't imagine that they would have the budget for someone like you yeah. skilled, but like someone who was like pushing that direction and they were like, come on, I need you because I need your push. Would you, would you think about doing it again? Or do you feel like there's no, you're no longer interested in political writing?
1: I would think about doing it again, but I think,
0: You want to be chief chief of staff?
1: uh, Hell no. (laughs) That sounds like a fucking nightmare. No, absolutely not. What I want is to be able to look them in the face and say, I'm for this, I'm for this, I'm for this, I'm for this, I'm for this. Pick three of them and that's what you have to be for too. Got it. That's that's where I want to be. That's the kind of power that I want to have. And if I'm not going to have that kind of power, then it's not worth it to me. Even if you're like, almost aligned even if you're like close but not just just not quite there like i'm not working for anyone who wants to talk about reform anymore
0: right we are not talking about
1: criminal justice reform (laughs) that's dead it's done
0: that's done right so so, as long as i don't
1: have to make those kinds of compromises then yeah i would be down to do it and if there's a candidate who would not ask me to make those comprom- compromises especially running for like you know some sort of major seat yeah i'd be happy to help them out because i'd be like this is going to be hard as shit <laughs> good luck yeah you need somebody <laughs> who can help you weather the storm but it's very unlikely
0: okay that's fair okay we'll come off of this topic though you might have to come back and just talk with me about it Happily. because i'm fascinated we already talked about what comes next for you so the i just have to Three more questions for people who love dyscalculia what are some other books you might recommend to them that are in the same conversation
1: push by sapphire
0: <laughs> okay. okay um and, that was and made an into the but film. a goodie
1: that was made into the film don't watch the film nobody seen to, it. it course, uh, if you're here ignore what i if you're <laughs> listening ignore what i said you will never watch the film precious but you will read push by sapphire yes. Elizabeth Alexander's memoir, Light, of, uh, God, is it light oh, of... The Light of the World. The light of we the world. did it on this show. We Thank did it you. as a
0: book club pick. So good. Yeah. yeah. Ugh, that book.
1: And then I would say Life on Mars by Tracy K. Smith.
0: Oh, okay. She's a poet. A poetry is, that, is that poetry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's poetry. Um,
1: because Tracy in that book does an excellent job at explaining the ineffable which sounds contradictory. But I think that's a big part of what I try to do in *Discalculia* is to try to to understand heartbreak as an ineffable set of emotions and then to try to articulate what that
0: ineffability is. So, yeah. When people read this book, what do you hope they'll keep in mind as they're reading?
1: I hope they'll forget that I'm a real person. I hope that people (laughs) will see every person in that book as a character which means that they can be analyzed as characters you can think Mm -hmm. of them as characters i say that because i know that with memoir i mean it's not fiction right so people come to memoir because they want to know a particular thing about a person Mm -hmm. but this book is no longer about me like on february 14th when it comes out It is no longer about me. It is about all of the different, all the myriad of ways that we all experience heartbreak together and break each other's hearts. And I think if people can remove me as a person and see me as a character, it'll be easier to get what I was trying to do.
0: Okay, last one. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be?
1: Oh my God, this is the most cliche answer. And I know somebody's going to drag me for it, but how can I not say Toni Morrison? Come on. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) <laughs> Come on! Oh, great okay. so can I give you another answer? I'll say Toni yes. Morrison. And then I'll also
0: say Sylvia Plath. Okay. I've never, I have had Toni Morrison before as an answer to that, but I've never had Sylvia Plath. Yeah. So we'll take it. I love it. All right, everybody, this has been a great conversation with Camon Felix. Her new book, Dyscalculia, A Love Story of Epic Miscalculation, is out in the world. Um, you can get it wherever you get your books. You can listen to it on audio. Kamon reads it. And you can read the physical copy. And if you're like me, you'll do both. Um, <laughs> Kamon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so
1: much for having me. This was the best interview. It was so fun. You're so good at this. I hope you keep doing it for a long
0: time. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you for listening. And thank you again to Kimon for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Carla Bruce Eddings for helping to make this conversation possible. Reminder, our February book club selection is The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich, which we will be discussing on Wednesday, February 22nd with Mina Times If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media, at The pod on Instagram, at Stackspod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.